15th of February 2003. Two million marks against the pendant war in Iraq. I cycled democracy, turned a blind eye. Tony, Tony, you're a Tory, don't deny it. You say you want a free Iraq from Saddam Hussein. But the truth is, along with Bush, you want imperialist power, strengthening of the pound and dollar, and power for oil. This is one of the many wars the Westerners have backed on for profit. War profit. War profit! Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 7th day of December, 2008. I'd like to remind all my listeners that you can find a list of links to all of the documents cited in today's episode by going to the homepage, CorbettReport.com, and clicking on today's episode under the Episodes tab. On the homepage, you'll also be able to find articles, interviews, and videos created and conducted by the Corbett Report. I'd like to remind my listeners that Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist, our forthcoming documentary, is still under production and will probably be released towards the end of the month, so please stay tuned for updates and information about that. But right now, let's get to today's real news. Our first real news story this week comes from PRWatch.org in an undated press release. New report, fake TV news widespread and undisclosed. The Center for Media Democracy and Free Press today exposed an epidemic of fake news infiltrating local television broadcasts across the country. At a press conference in Washington with FCC Commissioner Jonathan S. Adelstein, the groups called for a crackdown on stations that present corporate-sponsored videos as genuine news to an unsuspecting audience. CMD, which unveiled the results of a 10-month investigation, found scores of local stations slipping commercial video news releases, or VNRs, into their regular news programming. The new multimedia report released today includes footage of 36 separate VNRs and their broadcast as news by TV stations and networks nationwide, including those in the nation's biggest markets. It's shocking to see how product placement moves secretly unfiltered from the boardroom to the newsroom and then straight into our living rooms, said Diane Farsetta, a senior researcher at CMD and co-author of the report. Local TV broadcasts, the most popular news sources in the United States, frequently air VNRs without fact-checking, conducting their own reporting, or disclosing that the footage has been provided and sponsored by big corporations. Investigators captured 77 television stations actively disguising sponsored content from companies, including General Motors, Intel, Pfizer, and Capital One, to make it look like their own reporting. More than one-third of the time, stations aired fake news stories in their entirety as their own reporting. Today's second real news story comes from Bloomberg.com, December 3, 2008. First Parliament raid in 366 years eclipses Queen. Until last week, no one in the UK had dared search Parliament since 1642, when such an act led to the beheading of King Charles I. Then, on November 27th, police investigating government leaks arrested opposition lawmaker Damien Green, 52, raided his parliamentary offices, and seized his computers. It's without precedent, said David Butler, a fellow at Nuffield College, Oxford University. They were bloody fools to do it. The raid has divided Prime Minister Gordon Brown's government and triggered calls for the resignation of the Speaker of the House of Commons. Some lawmakers plan to complain about it today, overshadowing Queen Elizabeth II's annual opening of Parliament, a ritual intended to remind the monarch of the legislator's right to resist unwanted interference. The arrest of Green puts Brown in a fix, He has supported the police, saying they must be free of political influence, while insisting he had no prior knowledge of their plans. 
This presents labor as the party of the secretive state, said Stephen Driver of Roehampton University. It plays very well for the conservatives, allowing them to be on every man's side against big government. The episode almost four centuries ago began when Charles I entered the chamber with soldiers to search for five lawmakers who resisted his claim of a divine right to rule. Speaker of the House William Lenthal refused the king's demands to identify the lawmakers so they could be arrested. In the ensuing civil war, Parliament supporters defeated the king's. A plaque in Westminster Hall in Parliament marks the spot where Charles was tried before his 1649 execution. To this day, lawmakers pledge loyalty to the Queen while upholding their right to challenge the government. Green had embarrassed the Home Office, which oversees police and immigration matters, by publicizing confidential documents showing that a recession would lead to a rise in crime and that it had cleared 5,000 illegal immigrants to work as private guards and one to work as a parliament janitor. Our final real news story this week comes from theguardian.co.uk, Friday, December 5th, 2008. 17 judges, one ruling, and 857,000 records must be now wiped clear. The fingerprints and DNA samples of more than 857,000 innocent citizens who have been arrested or charged but never convicted of a criminal offense now face deletion from the National DNA Database after a landmark ruling by the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. In one of their most strongly worded judgments in recent years, the unanimous ruling from the 17 judges, including a British judge, Nicholas Bratza, condemned the blanket and indiscriminate nature of the powers given to the police in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland to retain the DNA samples and fingerprints of suspects who have been released or cleared. The judges were highly critical of the fact that the DNA samples could be retained without time limit and regardless of the seriousness of the offense or the age of the suspect. The court said there was a particular risk that innocent people would be stigmatized because they were being treated in the same way as convicted criminals. The judges added that the fact DNA profiles could be used to identify family relationships between individuals meant its indefinite intention also amounted to an interference with their right to respect for their private lives under the Human Rights Convention. The case provoked an expression of disappointment from the Home Secretary, Jackie Smith, and the promise that a working party, including senior police officials, will report back to Strasbourg by next March on how the government will comply with the judgment. The government mounted a robust defense before the court, and I strongly believe DNA and fingerprints play an invaluable role in fighting crime and bringing people to justice. The existing law will remain in place while we carefully consider the judgment. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to episode 67 of the Corbett Report, the 9-11 money trail. Now, of course, the Corbett Report has been concentrating on the 9-11 myth and deconstructing that myth has been one of the primary objectives of this podcast and the Corbett Report website since its inception. But over seven years after the events themselves, and after years of painstaking research by a number of researchers into the events, some of the interesting avenues of investigation have become so convoluted as to be almost impenetrable to newcomers. Indeed, at this point, if the 9-11 Truth Movement's goal is to continue to expand and reach new audiences, it needs to do so in new ways. People who have not yet been exposed to, or not yet been convinced by, the ample evidence of extreme physical anomalies on that day, from the controlled demolitions of the towers to the very unusual events at the Pentagon and in Pennsylvania, if people are not interested in that evidence or even the evidence that has been thoroughly documented by people like Webster Tarpley about the drills that were going on at the exact same time as the events that they were representing, then what is another way to get people into this? Of course, the investigation into the physical anomalies of that day is still of prime importance, 
But the research into those physical anomalies has now become so voluminous, so convoluted and impenetrable to outsiders or newcomers to the movement, that the impression is given that only credentialed experts could possibly decipher what really happened on that day. Likewise, many other avenues of investigation have been exhaustively explored by painstaking researchers like Webster Tarpley, who has done some of the best research on the drills that were taking place on that day that simulated the very events that were happening in real time. Again, I would direct listeners back to episode 20 of The Corbett Report for that incredible research. And of course, the research of Indira Singh is another very important piece of this puzzle. And I cannot recommend strongly enough for new listeners to The Corbett Report to go back and listen to episode number 45, in which we highlight Indira Singh and the P-Tech 9-11 software. But it seems to me that there is another avenue for investigation, one that's often overlooked, yet in fact is one of the easiest to understand at a basic level, and one that offers an extremely fruitful area of investigation. In fact, perhaps the base of all serious criminal investigations on events of this magnitude. People have often heard the refrain, follow the money, and of course an event like this is absolutely no different, even if you were to believe the official fairy tale of what happened on 9-11, you would still have to admit that following the money is of prime importance. In fact, one of the most important things that we can do to try to unravel what really happened on that day. Unless, of course, you listen to the 9-11 Commission. Yes, of course, the 9-11 Commission says that, don't worry, go back to sleep. There's nothing interesting to look at if you're interested in the financing of 9-11. Here's a quote directly from Chapter 5 of the 9-11 Commission report. Quote, To date, the U.S. government has not been able to determine the origin of the money used for the 9-11 attacks. Ultimately, the question is of little practical significance. Al-Qaeda had many avenues of funding. If a particular funding source had dried up, Al-Qaeda could have easily tapped a different source or diverted funds from another project to fund an operation that cost $400,000 to $500,000 over nearly two years. End quote. Yes, it's of very little practical significance where Al-Qaeda got the money for the attacks from because Al-Qaeda could have gotten that money from many places because Al-Qaeda has many different sources of funding. And since Al-Qaeda can get that money from many different sources, we don't have to investigate how Al-Qaeda got that money. Does anyone else get the impression that perhaps the 9-11 Commission report had come to certain conclusions about who did finance the attacks before the report was even written? Yes, I thought so. Well, let's explore some of the very troubling issues related to the 9-11 financing and hopefully, ultimately, come to a better understanding of how the attacks were perpetrated and by whom. And today we'll start with one of the most obvious and basic examples of how one individual stood to make four and a half billion dollars off of this horrific and tragic loss of life. Silverstein, a commercial real estate tycoon with international political connections, acquired a 99-year lease on the World Trade Center complex in the spring of 2001. Throughout the summer, he reworked the insurance policies on his new property, making sure that it was covered for acts of terrorism. Explicit in the lease agreement was Silverstein's right to rebuild the complex if it were destroyed. After 9-11, Mr. Silverstein fought his insurers in court to obtain double his policy limits for the destruction of his property, maintaining that the double hijacking constituted two disasters caused by terrorists, not just one. He won and was awarded over $7 billion, a magnificent return on his original $15 million investment. Not long after the disaster, Lower Manhattan saw banners like this one. Although they were idolized as cathedral-like symbols of power and triumph that pierced the New York skyline, the Twin Towers were big money losers for the Port Authority of New York. 
They cost millions a year to equip with the basics, electricity, water, heat, air conditioning, sewage, and even oxygen, being airtight. As modern communications connected traders from all corners of the globe, tenancy in the Twin Towers continued to drop. The towers presented another problem. Decades ago, their steel beams had been sprayed with fireproof asbestos, a cancer-causing material banned from use in building in the mid-1980s. Although the World Trade Center complex was given several waivers, it was expected to clean up its act. But to remove the asbestos from every supporting beam in the Twin Towers would have been almost undoable. Quotes for this cleanup ran over a billion, and no insurance company was willing to bear the cost. An urban renewal project of unfathomable proportions. Given the tower's issues and problems, September 11th proved an unexpected bonanza. The Trade Center was built in the 1960s to revive a rundown area of New York, and 40 years later, urban renewal could again take place. Two white elephants were removed, and a brand new complex is in the works. The full height of the new Freedom Tower will soar to 1,776 feet. Of course, Lucky Larry's acquisition of the World Trade Center just weeks before 9-11 is by now a well-known story, but one would be advised to check a Bloomberg.com article from 2007, entitled Silverstein Insurers Reach $2 Billion WTC Settlement for details of the final settlement, which brought to $4.55 billion the amount that Larry Silverstein made for the deaths of those thousands of people in the World Trade Center on that day. As I say, that story is fairly well known, but another story which is not so well known comes from a report from the Populist Party, populistamerica.com, from April 5th, 2007, Giuliani versus the Firefighters. This article reads in part, quote, Giuliani's cult hero status went untarnished and unchallenged until he decided to decline an invitation to the International Association for Firefighters Forum, open to all presidential candidates for Q&A. Mainstream news then picked up on the story and exposed the contention between the former mayor and the real heroes, the New York firefighters, who lost so many of their friends and compatriots in the attacks of that day. All was not well in Oz, and finally someone had alluded to the mask shadowing the truth. A great rift exists between Giuliani and the one group America assumes to be his staunchest allies. What did Giuliani do that so outraged the firefighters and their families that they would still hold such a grudge against him five years later? One cannot understand the source of this contention unless one has done some real and difficult research into the events of that day. In November 2001, our members were continuing the painful but necessary task of searching Ground Zero for the remains of our fallen brothers and the thousands of innocent citizens that were killed, because precious few of those who died in the terrorist attacks had been recovered at that point. Prior to November 2001, 101 bodies or remains of firefighters had been recovered, and those on the horrible pile at Ground Zero believed they had just found a spot in the rubble where they would find countless more that could be given proper burial. Nevertheless, Giuliani, with the full support of the fire commissioner Thomas von Essen, decided on November 2nd, 2001, to sharply reduce the number of those who could search for remains at any one time. There had been as many as 300 firefighters at a time involved in search and recovery, but Giuliani cut that number to no more than 25 who could be there at once. Here is where the mainstream falls short in their reporting. Why would Giuliani all of a sudden forcefully remove firefighters from the pile and in such a way that resulted in a brawl between the NYPD and NYFD? What the mainstream press will never dig into or question is, why did Giuliani place more importance on cleaning up the pile than in taking a slow retrieval approach to accessing the bodies of firefighters, police, and emergency workers still trapped in the wreckage of those buildings? Though two months later, chances were that no one was still alive, Many still clung to the hope that loved ones would be dug out of the devastation of those destroyed buildings. 
Families wanted a chance for closure. Bodies of their loved ones returned so that they could honor them with a proper memorial and burial. The firefighters believed that the city went to a scoop-and-dump policy because they were in a rush to retrieve gold. The fact is that the mayor's switch to a scoop-and-dump coincided with the final removal of tens of millions of dollars of gold, silver, and other assets of the Bank of Nova Scotia that were buried beneath what was once the towers. Once the money was out, Giuliani sided with the developers that opposed the lengthy recovery effort and ordered the scoop-and-dump operation so they could proceed with redevelopment. With his training as district attorney for New York, Giuliani knows from his prosecutor days that the first rule of a criminal investigation is in cordoning off a crime scene and preventing the tampering or removal of any piece of evidence within that area. Usually officers are put in place to prevent the eradication, removal of, or disruption of anything within that scene. Surely the events of September 11, 2001 constitute the most egregious, barbaric, terroristic, and criminal act ever perpetuated on American soil. End quote. Now, as that article details in some length, the issues of Giuliani and the crime scene of Ground Zero in the weeks and months following 9-11 involve not only the criminal act of tampering with the evidence of that crime scene, which included, as we've detailed in previous episodes of the Corbett Report podcast, preventing even volunteer teams of researchers from studying the remains of those towers to try to come to a better understanding of how they collapsed, instead making the sole purpose of the entire operation on Ground Zero that of dismantling the pile and getting rid of the evidence as quickly as possible. And here we have another missing clue as to why this may have happened. And according to the firefighters, at any rate, it's because of the tens of millions and, according to some reports, billions of dollars of gold which were hidden underneath the World Trade Center and which had to be removed as quickly as possible. Now, there are unsubstantiated theories on the internet that the billions of dollars that were hidden in the various vaults under the World Trade Center complex may have been tampered with on the day of 9-11 as the attacks were taking place, that in fact 9-11 may have had elements of a gigantic bank heist. Now, again, I can't vouch for the validity of these reports, but I do think they're interesting and worth looking into as another possible clue on the 9-11 money trail. But one very real and very important 9-11 money trail clue came out not on 9-11, but on 9-10. On that day, Donald Rumsfeld made a cold and calculating announcement that, in fact, the Pentagon had lost $2.3 trillion. Again, that's $2.3 trillion with a T, which represented about the same amount of money for the entire federal budget of the same year. How $2.3 trillion could go missing from the Pentagon has never been accurately explained. To get more details of this story, let's listen to the following news report. Pentagon, the day before 911, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld declared war, not on foreign terrorists. The adversary is closer to home. It's the Pentagon bureaucracy. He said money wasted by the military poses a serious threat. In fact, it could be said that it's a matter of life and death. Rumsfeld promised change, but the next day, the world changed. And in the rush to fund the war on terrorism, the war on waste seems to have been forgotten. My 03 budget calls for more than $48 billion in new defense spending. More money for the Pentagon when its own auditors admit the military cannot account for 25% of what it already spends. According to some estimates, we cannot track $2.3 trillion in transactions. $2.3 trillion, with a T. That's $8,000 for every man, woman, and child in America. To understand how the Pentagon can lose track of trillions, consider the case of one military accountant who tried to find out what happened to a mere 300 million. We know it's gone, but we don't know what they spent it on. Jim Minnery, a former Marine turned whistleblower, is risking his job by speaking out for the first time about the millions he noticed were missing from one defense agency's balance sheets. Minnery tried to follow the money trail, 
even crisscrossing the country looking for records. The director looked at me and he says, why do you care about this stuff? <laughs> it took me aback, you know. My supervisor asked me why I care about doing a good job. So. He was reassigned and says officials then covered up the problem by just writing it off. They got to cover it up. That's where the corruption comes in. They've got to cover up the fact that they can't do the job. The Pentagon's inspector general partially substantiated several of Minnery's allegations, but could not prove officials tried to manipulate the financial statements. Twenty years ago, Pentagon employee Franklin C. Spinney made headlines exposing what he calls the accounting games. He's still there, and although he does not speak for the Pentagon, he believes the problem has gotten worse. Those numbers are pie in the sky. The books are cooked routinely year after year after year. Retired Vice Admiral Jack Shanahan commanded the Navy's second fleet the first time Donald Rumsfeld served as defense secretary. With good financial oversight, we could find $48 billion in loose change in that building without having to hit the taxpayers. In the two and a half minutes since this report began, the Pentagon has spent nearly $2 million, and it may never know where 25% of those tax dollars went. In Los Angeles, I'm Vince Gonzalez for Eye on America. Now, despite the incredible nature of that admission, $2.3 trillion simply missing from the Pentagon, announced casually the day before 9-11, it was never followed up on in the controlled corporate media, who had other agendas to cover after, of course, the events of that day. One brief bright ray of hope occurred in 2005 when Representative Cynthia McKinney grilled Donald Rumsfeld during the House hearings on the 2006 budget for the U.S. Department of Defense. Let's listen to McKinney as she questions Rumsfeld on the missing trillions and hear Rumsfeld's pathetic response. I thank the uh, gentleman, the uh, gentlelady from uh, Georgia, Ms. McKinney. Oh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Secretary, I watched President Bush deliver a moving speech at the United Nations in September 2003 in which he, mission, he mentioned the crisis of the sex trade. The president called for the punishment of those involved in this horrible business. But at the very moment of that speech, DynCorp was exposed for having been involved in the buying and selling of young women and children. While all of this was going on, DynCor kept the Pentagon contract to administer the smallpox and anthrax vaccines and is now working on a plague vaccine through the Joint Vaccine Acquisition Program. Mr. Secretary, is it policy of the U.S. government to reward companies that traffic in women and little girls? That's my first question. My second question, Correct. Mr. Secretary, according to the Comptroller General of the United States, there are serious financial pro management problems at the Pentagon, to which Mr. Cooper alluded. Fiscal year 1999, 2.3 trillion missing. Fiscal year 2000, 1.1 trillion missing. And DOD is the number one reason why the government can't balance its checkbook. The Pentagon has claimed year after year that the reason it can't account for the money is because its computers don't communicate with each other. My second question, Mr. Secretary, is who has the contracts today to make those systems communicate with each other? How long have they had those contracts? And how much have the taxpayers paid for them? Finally, Mr. Secretary, after the last hearing, I thought that my office was promised a written response to my question regarding the four war games on September 11th. I have not yet received that re response but would like for you to respond to the questions that I've put to you today, and then I do expect the written response to my previous question, hopefully by the end of the week. Um, thank you, uh, Representative. First, the answer to your first question is, is no, absolutely not. The policy of the United States government is uh, clear, unambiguous, and opposed to uh, to the activities that you described. The um, second question. Well, how do you explain the fact that um, DynCorp and its successor uh, companies have received and continue to receive government contracts? 
I would have to go and, and find the facts, but there are laws and rules and regulations with respect to government contracts, and there are times that corporations do things they should not do, in which case they tend to be suspended for some period. There are times then that, that the, under the laws and the rules and regulations for the, that uh, passed by the Congress and implemented by the executive branch, that corporations can get off of the pen, out of the penalty box, if you will, and, and be permitted to engage in contracts with the government. They're, they're not generally not barred in perpetuity. This contract, this company um, was never in the penalty box. If you could proceed to my second question, please. The, um, the second question, uh, I've forgotten what the second question was. I think Ms. Jonas knows it. Okay. And the final missing piece in this puzzle is the fact that one of the offices hit on that day in the Pentagon was the budget analyst office where budget analysts were working on the question of the missing trillions. September 11th of 2001 was a very clear, bright, beautiful day. And I had just come back from the Pentagon barber shop, walked by my office and glanced up on the television screen and there was uh, one of the Twin Towers burning. We never heard the plane come in, at least I didn't. Uh, suddenly the whole world turned upside down. I saw that fireball and I gotta tell you, I saw that and I said to myself, I'm going to die today. That plane had come directly under our, our section of the offices. The Army Budget Office, where 38 uh, Army employees were killed, was directly beneath us and the Navy's new command center was two floors beneath us. Everybody was killed in those two sections. Again, the significance of this missing 2.3 trillion and further trillions that have gone missing since 9-11 is an urgent and vital issue that needs to be addressed, but will never be addressed in the controlled corporate media or by the controlled representatives on the Hill these days. And again, just to put that number into perspective, $2.3 trillion is about $8,000 for every man, woman, and child in the United States. This is not a trivial amount of money. But yet another 9-11 money trail leads through, of all places, the Federal Reserve. This comes from a March 2007 article from the Muckraker Report entitled, Former Fed Analyst Questions M1 Currency Component Spike Prior to 9-11. Quote, William Bergman worked at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago from July 1990 until early 2004. He served as an economist for eight years and then moved to a senior analyst position in a new department researching financial market and payment system risk policy issues. In late 2003, he was asked to consider an assignment in the money laundering area. Bergman accepted the assignment, underwent a background check, received credentials affording access to confidential banking information, and began working in the area. He was told that he was part of the fight against terrorism and that he had been asking good questions. One aspect of the assignment of the money laundering area was for Bergman to develop a paper that, if accepted, could serve as a reference source for the Federal Reserve System. Bergman had noted that the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve had issued supervisory letters to the 12 reserve banks in the weeks after September 11, 2001, urging scrutiny of suspicious activity reports in tracking terrorism activity and financing. However, Bergman also noticed that the Board of Governors had issued a similar letter, albeit one that did not refer explicitly to terrorism, on August 2, 2001. According to Bergman, terrorism and terrorist financing were known to be part of suspicious activity, however, and the August 2, 2001 supervisory letter clearly called for scrutiny of suspicious activity, which implies and includes the tracking of terrorism activity and financing. A supervisor gave him the green light and directed him to find the answer regarding the August 2, 2001 supervisory letter. Bergman decided that the best method to discover the answer was to contact the staff of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve directly. 
In December 2003, he called the board and inquired about the meaning and motivation behind the August 2, 2001 letter. Within two weeks, his assignment was abruptly terminated and his credentials cancelled. Bergman explains, At the time, I was also looking into and asking questions about currency flows. I thought these questions were worth pursuing and was planning to raise them when I made the above-noted phone call to the Board of Governors. The currency component of M1, Federal Reserve notes circulating outside of banks, rose especially rapidly in July and August 2001. In fact, up to and including August 2001, that month, August 2001, was one of the three fastest-growing months for the currency component of N1 since 1947 on a seasonally adjusted basis, even on the heels of significantly above-average growth in July 2001. Much of the July-August surge, over $5 billion above average, seems to have been in the $100 denomination. Among other explanations, persons aware of any imminent terrorist attacks and concerned about possible arrest seizures, such as those that arose after the 1979 Iranian hostage crisis and the 1998 embassy bombings, could have been trying to liquidate their bank accounts in July and August 2001. The money trail could provide important clues about people aware of, if not responsible for, the attacks. I looked at some internal data bearing on this issue that was available to anyone within the Federal Reserve's internal computer network. After going back to look at this important data again a week or two later, it was no longer freely available, but password protected. Approximately one month after his money laundering work was terminated for what was described at the time as an egregious breach of protocol attributed to his contacting the staff of the Board of Governors, Bergman's department was absorbed into another department and his 14-year employment with the Federal Reserve ended. Bergman was told that the elimination of his position at the Federal Reserve had nothing to do with him personally, that it was an organizational matter. He was offered and accepted a severance package and left the Chicago Federal Reserve Bank in March 2004. And what about the August 2, 2001 supervisory letter? What prompted it? Sadly, Americans are once again left with trying to determine for themselves, because nobody entrusted to uphold the rule of law free from passion or prejudice is willing to launch a thorough and purposeful criminal investigation, who knew what and when. Prior knowledge of 9-11 without action and or effort to prevent the events from unfolding is at minimum criminally negligent homicide, a felony. For many within the U.S. government and foreign intelligence community, as well as the banking cartel, for the entire wide-ranging set of unindicted co-conspirators, justice waits but must prevail. End quote. Again, that's a very important article from the Muckraker Report, and I suggest my listeners go check it out by going to CorbettReport.com and finding the link from the documentation section of today's episode. I'll also put a link up to a May 2007 Muckraker Report, which goes into the Federal Reserve's response to that original report, attempting to explain the $5 billion in $100 bills that were suddenly pumped into the system in July and August of 2001, by saying that it was related to the collapse of the Argentinian economy at the time. However, of course, there is no documentation provided for such a claim, even though such documentation would be easily available and could easily be provided to the public. It has not been done, and it was not done when William Bergman, one of the Federal Reserve's own workers, was attempting to investigate the matter way back in 2003-2004. And it should be restated and restressed that after attempting to look into that, he was taken off the assignment and his employment was promptly terminated. What it means exactly that billions of dollars of liquidity was being pumped into the system in the largest surge in the M1 supply since 1947, just weeks before the most spectacular attack on U.S. soil in modern history, is a question that any honest person would have to admit needs to be answered in a thorough and independent investigation into 9-11. One of the most famous clues on the 9-11 money trail involves one of the most well-known but least understood stories of what happened during the weeks leading up to 9-11, 
which was the large increase in put options on certain companies which were to be involved in the terrorist attacks. Put options being that form of derivative which basically amount to a gamble that a company is going to decrease in value in the coming days, weeks, or months in a certain time period. Of course, the obvious implication is that somebody or some group knew about the attacks and attempted to profit from them by attempting to short some of the companies which were going to be involved in those attacks. A dastardly way for Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda to make money off of the attacks that they had planned. Or so one would assume if one believed the official fairy tale of 9-11. It is perhaps telling, then, that this story has never been followed up and has never been concluded in the public arena. Of course, official reports indicated that the SEC was launching the largest investigation in its history to attempt to come to an understanding of who placed these bets that these companies would suffer, and whether they did so with inside knowledge of the attacks. But that investigation has uh, evidently concluded, although there has never been any admission of what was discovered. That there was indeed unusual market activity that indicated a prior knowledge of the attacks in the weeks leading up to the attacks is not a debatable matter. It was concluded in a peer-reviewed scientific study conducted by Alan Potishman in the Journal of Business. I will include a link to that article, of course, in the documentation section for today's episode, though it's quite heavy on the jargon and maybe impenetrable to the non-specialists in the audience but it does provide the statistical proof that indeed there was advanced knowledge. And that comes directly from the conclusion of the paper, which reads in part, quote, Consequently, the paper concludes that there is evidence of unusual option market activity in the days leading up to September 11th that is consistent with investors trading on advanced knowledge of the attacks. End quote. But of course, the actual investigative journalism on this, one of the central stories of 9-11, is left to the alternative media. And consequently, a report was put out from the From the Wilderness site, run by Michael C. Rupert, who has been featured in previous episodes of this podcast, from October 9th, 2001. There was a story entitled, Suppressed Details of Criminal Insider Trading Lead Directly into the CIA's Highest Ranks. CIA Executive Director Buzzy Krongard managed firm that handled put options on UAL. This article reads in part, quote, Although uniformly ignored by the mainstream U.S. media, there is abundant and clear evidence that a number of transactions in financial markets indicated specific criminal foreknowledge in the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. In the case of at least one of these trades, which has left a $2.5 million prize unclaimed, the firm used to place the put options on United Airlines stock was, until 1998, managed by the man who is now in the number three executive director position at the Central Intelligence Agency. Until 1997, A.B. Buzzy Krongard had been chairman of the investment bank A.B. Brown. A.B. Brown was acquired by Bankers Trust in 1997, Krongard then became, as part of the merger, vice chairman of Bankers Trust A.B. Brown, one of 20 major U.S. banks named by Senator Carl Levin this year as being connected to money laundering. Krongard's last position at Bankers Trust was to oversee private client relations. In this capacity, he had direct hands-on relations with some of the wealthiest people in the world in a kind of specialized banking operation that has been identified by the U.S. Senate and other investigators as being closely connected to the laundering of drug money. End quote. Now that article goes into a lot of further detail regarding the specifics of the trades that were made in the weeks leading up to the attacks, which showed an advanced foreknowledge of the attacks themselves, and more of the connections between Buzzy Krongard, the CIA, and A.B. Brown, as well as Deutsche Bank. But there's an extremely important section of that article which I'd like to quote from right now, entitled, CIA, the Banks, and the Brokers. Quote, Understanding the interrelationships between CIA and the banking and brokerage world is critical to grasping the already frightening implications of the above revelations. Let's look at the history of CIA, Wall Street, and the big banks by looking at some of the key players in CIA's history. 
Clark Clifford. The National Security Act of 1947 was written by Clark Clifford, a Democratic Party powerhouse, former Secretary of Defense, and one-time advisor to President Harry Truman. In the 1980s, as chairman of First American Bank Shares, Clifford was instrumental in getting the corrupt CIA drug bank, BCCI, a license to operate on American shores. His profession? Wall Street lawyer and banker. John Foster and Alan Dulles. These two brothers designed the CIA for Clifford. Both were active in intelligence operations during World War II. Alan Dulles was OSS station chief in Bern, Switzerland, where he met frequently with Nazi leaders and looked after U.S. investments in Germany. John Foster went on to become Secretary of State under Dwight Eisenhower, and Alan went on to serve as CIA director under Eisenhower, and was later fired by JFK. Their professions? Partners in the most powerful, to this day, Wall Street law firm of Sullivan Cromwell. Bill Casey. Ronald Reagan's CIA director and OSS veteran who served as chief wrangler during the Iran-Contra years was, under President Richard Nixon, chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission. His profession, Wall Street lawyer and stockbroker. David Doherty. The current vice president of the New York Stock Exchange for Enforcement is the retired general counsel of the Central Intelligence Agency. George Herbert Walker Bush. President from 1989 to January 1993, also served as CIA director for 13 months from 1976 to 77. He is now a paid consultant to the Carlyle Group, the 11th largest defense contractor in the nation, which also shares joint investments with the Bin Laden family. A.B. Buzzy Krongard. The current executive director of the Central Intelligence Agency is the former chairman of the investment bank A.B. Brown and former vice chairman of Bankers Trust. John Deutsch. This retired CIA director from the Clinton administration currently sits on the board at Citigroup, the nation's second largest bank, which has been repeatedly and overtly involved in the documented laundering of drug money. This includes Citigroup's 2001 purchase of a Mexican bank known to launder drug money, Banamex. Nora Slatkin. This retired CIA executive director also sits on Citibank's board. Maurice Hank Greenberg. The CEO of AIG Insurance, manager of the third largest capital investment pool in the world, was floated as a possible CIA director in 1995. From the wilderness exposed Greenberg's and AIG's long connection to CIA drug trafficking and covert operations in a two-part series that was interrupted just prior to the attacks of September 11th. AIG's stock has bounced back remarkably well since the attacks. End quote. Again, lots of very important information there about the ties between the CIA and Wall Street, as well as information specifically related to the 9-11 insider trading. Another great place to go for information about that is the 2006 Volume 23 in the continuing series Research in Political Economy, entitled The Hidden History of 9-11-2001. Now in that series, edited by Paul Zaremka, a professor of economics at Buffalo State University of New York, Professor Zaremka has an article entitled Initiation of the 9-11 Operation with Evidence of Insider Trading Beforehand, in which he goes into some of the details about the insider trading. Again, I would suggest people check out that work, the Research in Political Economy, Volume 23, for articles by many noted professors related to 9-11 research, including, of course, David Ray Griffin, as well as many others. I recently had the chance to talk to Mr. Zaremka about his article and about some of the evidence for 9-11 insider trading. Let's listen to an excerpt from that interview, which I conducted with Paul Zaremka. First, it might be useful to define some of the terms employed in your discussion for the non-specialists in the audience. I'm sure many people have heard about the spike in put options on United and American Airlines in the week leading up to the attack. So... Putting aside the specificity of the 9-11 attacks for a moment, can you define a put option and talk about the significance of a spike in put option activity before a large event? Okay, a put option, and there's something in the opposite called a call option, but we're only going to talk about a put option now. 
and I'm going to try and describe it kind of simply. I mean, if you if you have the feeling that a specific stock is going to fall in price, let's say within the next 30 days or the next 90 days or even in the next year, you're almost certain of it, okay? Then you might want to make the following bet, and that is to buy something called a put option, which means that you will have the right to sell that stock in the future at a price that's negotiated today, even if the price in the future were much lower than it is today. And at the same time, you could, if you sold the stock at that higher price in the future, you could actually buy the stock right before that. So you buy the stock, and then you sell it under the put option at this higher price, and you make a lot of money. I mean, that's what you... That's what your intention is in doing a put option. Put options have what they call a strike price, which is the price that you're, nego that you're negotiating that you have the option to sell the stock for in the future. That's the strike price, and it also has an expiration date. It tells you how many days you have to you're allowed to, to wait out the fluctuations in the stock price in the meantime. Okay, so let's get into the specifics of 9-11. Uh, firstly, what is the official position on the 9-11 insider trading as put forward by the 9-11 Commission? Um, well, they actually gave it very scant attention. They, they, maybe before I give you the official position, let me give you the news report that came out right after 9-11, because I think that's actually more important than what the 9-11 Commission did. Right after 9-11, people who, were, who know the stock markets and option markets, and, and I know where to get the data, and this data is to some extent publicly available, I mean, I'd have to clarify that if it's necessary, found out that there was a lot of put option trading on many of the companies that were negatively impacted by 9-11, including, obviously, the two airlines that had planes that were going into the skies that day, namely American Airlines and United Airlines. Let me repeat, there's two there was many companies, but specifically American Airlines and United Airlines, that had a lot of put option trading going on in the few days before 9-11, and people got very suspicious that, there, that, that if you followed the money, you would find out who, who done it, who engaged in the 9-11 operation. I think what actually happened is that the people who were doing that assumed that it was definitely Osama bin Laden and his people, that they were making a killing because they knew it was going to happen ahead of time because they were doing the operation. So um, they they wanted they wanted to show the enormous increase in put option trading on American Airlines and United Airlines and some other companies that occurred before 9-11. Get the names of the people who did it, and then you have the proof that 9-11 was done by, for example, Osama bin Laden. That went on, that discussion went on. I mean, they didn't actually say who did it. They just said that there's an enormous increase in put option volume in, the, in that period of time, and uh, they were calling for an investigation. Suddenly, that whole discussion just dropped out of the sky, and it, was, it wasn't talked about anymore, um, which suggested somebody said to somebody that the answers that you're going to get very happy to you. It's not going to be. It's not going to lead to where you think it's going to lead to. So you better shut up about it. Um, I mean, I'm sort of being colloquial about it, but that's what basically what I think happened. Um, but on the other hand, since it had been in some of the major financial press, including Barron's, for example, um, they the 9/11 Commission, when it reported, knew that it couldn't just forget about the issue. So they had one sentence and then one long footnote in the report, which basically dismissed the whole investigation about uh, in, about, in, about the put options, which are what is which would be connected to something called insider trading. In other words, you know you know that an event is going to happen that gives you inside knowledge. And you take advantage of that knowledge by engaging in put option trading in this case. All right. Well, in your article, you detail some of the evidence that, in fact, this insider uh, trading did take place. Tell us about some of the sources of information you so, you cite in that article. Um, well, 
that gets kind of a it gets into a kind of complicated discussion because to tell you the truth, some of the reports were exaggerated in the beginning. By which I mean to say that they were reports of like a ninety times increase in put option volumes or nine hundred times increase in put option trading volume that occurred. Um, and some people were, were quoting other people who were reporting these numbers, and but then other people were reporting different numbers. So a lot of my work actually was sort of nailing down what the what the truth of the matter was. And there is something called Option Metrics. It's a company that provides data on on um, option trading in any stocks every day of the year, including every trade day of the year, including strike prices and when there's expiration for these, uh, these uh, put options. So I had to get all that data and look and see what was happening, particularly to American Airlines and United Airlines. And the result I found out, at least one result was that some of the people were reporting the data correctly and some were making what looks like the mistake of doubling the number of option trades by basically looking at a buy and a sell as two trades when actually it's one trade. In other words, if you look at it, if you count it as somebody buys from somebody else, okay, then it looks like there's there's two people involved and you count that as two trades when it's actually uh, should be counted as one trade. Option metrics, when it reports its data, reports it correctly. I mean, it basically divides by two when it, when it does that. Um, now, having said that, Okay, because that itself took pretty pretty much work. Having said that, nevertheless, there's still a huge amount of option put option trading going on in 9/11 before in American Airlines and United Airlines. Um, so, and and to tell you the kinds of profits that could be made, and both American Airlines and United Airlines were trading at about thirty dollars a share before 9/11. And to the week after 9/11, they were trading at about 18. In other words, they dropped from 30 to about 18. So, or, you know, that border magnitude. So the end result is you could make something like a $12 profit on every single one of those trades you engage in, minus whatever the costs were of the options themselves, which probably were in the order of 50 cents, something like that. Um, and that was it's a quite a it's quite a it's quite a profitable operation if you know it, because you knew ahead of time that it was going to happen. You knew ahead of time that 9-11 was going to happen, and it was going to impact negatively American Airlines and United Airlines, you can make a lot of money. So some sources have said that um, people have made in the, in the neighborhood of tens of millions of dollars from such trading. Other sources claim it could be in the billions. Uh, what is your uh, take on the range of likely profits derived from these trades? Well, uh, that's hard to say. Um, First of all, there's a lot more companies involved in those two companies. Um, you have to look at the insurance companies that were negatively impacted on 9-11, construction companies that might have been negatively impacted, hotel companies that might have been uh, negatively impacted. There has been, there's a group two of two professors now in Zurich who are investigating these other companies. Um, Furthermore, some people say that there's been there was a lot of activity in, in the precious metals markets and even in in uh, possibly in um, in treasury bonds and, and treasury bills. Um, my own my own sense is that maybe maybe in the order of hundreds of millions were made overall, but not billions. I mean, I, I, I can't prove that, but my sense is by looking at these two stocks and then looking at the other stocks, some of which maybe didn't even have insider trading that we could really identify, um, I don't think the end result would be more than, uh, say, a quarter of a billion. Of course, I would suggest, as always, that my listeners go to corporatereport.com to listen to that interview in its entirety, although I would like to make note that Professor Zaremka has retracted one statement that he made in that interview about a book by Al Franken. He was only quoting that information secondhand, and after having reviewed the matter, has retracted the comments that he made about that book. Now, keeping on the subject of the 9-11 inside trading foreknowledge, of course, I would be remiss in my duties if I were not to point out the incredible remarks recently made by CIA analyst Robert Baer, 
who was featured in our 9-11 Truth audio documentary from episode 31 of the Corbett Report podcast. Again, this is a veteran CIA field agent and the man whose experiences were fictionalized in the movie Syriana, where he was portrayed by George Clooney. And in conversation recently with We Are Change LA, this is what he had to say about the subject of foreknowledge of 9-11. So what do you believe, though? Because, I mean, the National Reconnaissance... My beliefs are irrelevant. Well, no, they're very important because the cover-up of 9-11, technically under the Constitution, Article 3, Section 3, is a cover-up of an act of war, and thus it is treasonous. So we have to have these, these answers. Anyone obfuscating the, what actually happened on 9-11 is technically guilty of treason in, in, in covering up an act of war. Why was there no accountability? Why didn't anybody get fired? That's, That's a very good we question. We as well. Right? People were promoted. Uh, people that towed the party line... We're not talking about me, we're talking Americans. If I were Americans, okay. I'd demand answers. Yes. That's what we're trying to do. Yes. We're trying to well, have dialogue. We appreciate your there. talking with us. Okay, thanks. All right, Thank cool. you very much, And Bob. then the last thing I would leave you with is National Reconnaissance Office who's running a, a drill, a plane crash into their building. And you know they're staffed by DOD I and know CIA. The, right? I know the guy that went into his broker in San Diego and, and said, cash me out, it's going down tomorrow. Really? Yeah. That tells us wow. something. Again, there is a mountain of incredible evidence here, forensic evidence, this time of the economic variety, that has not been investigated with anything near the zeal that the physical anomalies of 9-11 have been investigated. And yet it is at least equally as fruitful an area of research, and one that I would wholeheartedly suggest that my listeners take into account in their own research of 9-11. There are many different clues here that need to be followed up in much greater detail than I can possibly afford them in this one podcast episode, which is why I, as always, turn this investigation back to you, the listener. Please take some of the documents from the documentation section of this episode as some basis for your own research and get out there to discover even more clues on this 9-11 money trail. The simple fact is that there are identifiable people who profited from these attacks, and they are not related to Al-Qaeda, perhaps only to Al-Qaeda. So unless we are to take the 9-11 Commission report's rebuke that this cannot have any practical significance, then I suggest you do your research and try to find out where this money trail leads. Follow the money and find the criminals. That's it for this week. I am your host, James Corbett. Thank you for joining me, and join me again next week for another episode. His name's Mac I saw what I'll relate to you Going on behind my back It seems the folks were up in arms A man now had to die For believing things that didn't fit The laws they'd set aside The man's name was I'm a freak The best that I could see He was the executioner A hangman just like me I guess that he'd seen loopholes from working with his rope. He'd hung the wrong men many times, so now he'd turn to hope. He'd talk to all the people from his scaffold in the square. He told them of the things he found, but they didn't seem to care. He said the laws were obsolete, a change they should demand. But the people only walked away, he couldn't understand. The marshal's name was Uncle Sam, he said he'd right this wrong. He'd make the hangman shut his mouth if it took him on and on. He finally arrested Freak, and then he sent for me to hang a fellow hangman from a fellow hangman's tree. It didn't take them long to try him in their court of law. 
guilty men of thinking a crime much worse than all. They sentenced him to die, so his seed of thought can't spread and infect the little children. That's what the law had said. So the hanging day came round, and he walked up to the noose. I pulled the lever, but before he fell, I cut him loose. They called it all conspiracy, and that I had to die. So to close our mouths and kill our minds, they hung us side by side. And now we're two hanged men hanging from a tree that don't bother me. The second question, uh, I've forgotten what the second question was. I think Ms. Jonas knows it. Okay. 